Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 28th, 2024. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we look at the front page of today's Gazette. Above the fold, we do not know what God has in store for mercy. About 1,000 Mercy Iowa City workers become UIHC employees under transition by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette in Iowa City. On a foggy afternoon last week, inside a full sanctuary across the street from Iowa City's community hospital that for 150 years has delivered babies, mended bones, nursed pneumonia, and shepherded patients and families through trauma, fear, and even death, a trio of Mercy Sisters stood, turned to face the congregation, and raised their arms to bless the transitioning hospital. To let go doesn't forget, the Reverend Jenny Saylor, lead chaplain for Mercy Iowa City, said from the pulpit inside Zion Lutheran Church during a memorial service for the hospital, which later this week is expected to officially transition to University of Iowa ownership. To let go is to cherish memories. It's having an open mind and confidence in the future, she said, quoting an unknown author. Letting go is learning and experiencing and growing. To let go is to be thankful for the experience that made you laugh and made you cry and made you grow. It's about all that you have, all that you had, and all that you will have again. Letting go is having the courage to accept change and the strength to keep moving. Letting go is growing up in wisdom. To let go is to open the door and to clear a path and to be set free. After years of financial decline, a contentious bankruptcy that saw twists and turns and backroom feuding, and a flip-flopping auction that eventually sold Mercy to the UI for $28 million, the hospital is set Wednesday to lose its private status and religious affiliation, among other things, and gain, with its transition, a new name, University of Iowa Healthcare Medical Center Downtown. We do not know what God has in store for Mercy Iowa City and it has become as it becomes part of the University of Iowa Hospital, Saylor said, yet we will continue to care well for patients and we will stand as a pillar in this community and in Southeast Iowa. As part of the transfer, about 1,000 Mercy team members, including 45 physicians and 33 advanced practice providers, will become UIHC employees. Earlier this month, UI Vice President for Medical Affairs Denise Jamison told the Gazette the university made job offers to about 1,100 Mercy staff, including advanced practitioners, nurses, receptionists, and food workers, in addition to 53 physicians. Nearly all those remaining from the 90-plus doctors reportedly working for Mercy when it filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy August 7th. While most Mercy employees accepted the offers, some didn't. The new compensation packages weren't always commensurate with what Mercy paid. One of the things that we've talked about with the current Mercy employees is this era of transparency, Jameson said. Now all salaries will be publicly available, which I think is a really good thing because we want to be fair and equitable across the system. We don't want to have special closed-door deals where somebody comes and says, I'm special and I want to be paid a lot more. Kathy Shemansky, 64, is among the longtime Mercy employees who accepted a UIHC offer, having worked in its dietary department and patient transfer for nearly 45 years. With her retirement looming and questions about pension plans and patient care and decades of legacy hanging in the balance, Shemansky said she was happy UIHC landed the sale. Because they promised they would keep us as a community hospital, Shemansky said. That was really important to us and the patients. I chat with the patients a lot when I'm transporting them, and they're always asking me, I hope you stay in the hospital. It's comforting to be able to tell them, yes, we're going to stay at a hospital. A recent report from a patient care ombudsman, assigned by the bankruptcy court to monitor patient care, noted various staffing strain points. 
At the time of the ombudsman's visit, staff were in the process of receiving official position and compensation information for university employment, according to the report. For some, the reported benchmarking of their role at UIHC was at a level that was inconsistent with their mercy status. Although the ombudsman consistently heard comments that supported the university transaction as the best outcome from those available, she also warned some level of staff and or clinician departures could occur. A handful of staff, staff resignations were reported to the ombudsman as she met with various leadership and team members across the organization during her site visit, according to the report, anticipating a 90% offer acceptance rate. Given vast differences between community hospitals and sprawling academic medical centers, like UHC, the largest health care system in Iowa, Mercy Iowa City, although now owned by the university, will be allowed to continue operating in many of the same ways it has, thanks to separate bylaws approved by the Board of Regents during an emergency meeting last week. Upon completion of the sale, UI Healthcare will operate two separately licensed hospitals, UIHC Associate Vice President for Legal Affairs Joseph Clemen told the Regents. The two hospitals will have two separate medical staffs. Under the separate bylaws, the traditional UI hospitals and clinics on Hawkins Drive will maintain a closed medical staff, meaning members must hold a faculty appointment with the UI Carver College of Medicine to practice and provide care there. The downtown hospital will continue to maintain an open medical staff, that is, a medical staff that doesn't require a faculty appointment to maintain medical staff privileges, Clamon said of the Mercy model, allowing affiliates with other clinics specializing in orthopedics, cardiology, and obstetrics to care for patients in its facilities. Before approving the bylaws Wednesday, Regent Jim Lindenmayer raised a question looming over the transaction, a question yet to be answered or evaluated in depth with administrators and attorneys focused on immediate transition details. I noticed you're operating under two different licenses, Lyndon Meyer said, and I assume because of the open and closed nature of the staff that's a transitional thing and that eventually maybe we would move to one entity. Clamon answered, I wouldn't foreclose either way, but I think for the foreseeable future, we intend to operate as two separate hospitals with two separate medical staffs because it's so important for us to make sure those private physicians in the city have a place they can practice, Clamon said. But obviously, into the future, we'll continue to evaluate what's best for the state as a whole. Given the changes in ownership and long-term unknowns related to services, staffing needs and infrastructure upgrades, with UIHC committing to infuse $25 million into the campus over five years, not all Mercy doctors and employees stayed. Some swapped affiliation with other nearby hospitals, such as Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital or Mercy Medical Center, both in Cedar Rapids. We are excited to announce North Liberty Family Health Center will join the Unity Point Clinic Cedar Rapids family. That clinic told patients in an October 10th letter about its switch from Mercy Iowa City affiliation. Our transition to Unity Point Clinic is a perfect partnership as we share the same medical philosophy that patients and their families matter. Unity Point spokeswoman Sarah Carrizo said several doctors and former Mercy Iowa City affiliated clinics have considered joining its system. Unity Point Health Cedar Rapids always welcomes new patients, providers, and team members into our organization, she said. While we do not have any specific numbers to share, we have had individuals reach out and explore their options for care and employment. Similarly, Mercy Medical Center has had several Mercy Iowa City staffers join its ranks, according to spokeswoman Karen Vandersanden. 
In addition, over the last few years, Mercy Cedar Rapids has signed several former Mercy Iowa City providers, including specialists and primary care physicians, she said. Many have cited the importance of working in a community setting and the culture of an organization based on the mission of the Sisters of Mercy as rewarding, and they want to continue working in that type of environment. Also from the front page, 2023 drought still plagues Iowa livestock producers by Brittany Miller of the Gazette. When hay started to sprout on Steve Swinka's fields back in June, he realized right away it was going to be a rough growing season. His pastures were already struggling to grow when he turned his 120 Angus beef cows loose in May. The 600 acres of his Tiffin property didn't see an abundance of rain all summer. He knew he was going to be short on hay by about two-thirds, according to his estimates. It wouldn't be enough to get his cattle through the winter. So he bought 120 bales of extra hay before his first cutting ever left the ground, cutting a cool $12,000 into his bottom line. As the summer unfolded and it kept getting drier and drier, I think that hay supplies just kept getting tighter, Swinka, 53, said. I could see the handwriting on the wall. It wasn't hard to tell that it wasn't going to be just me. It would be everybody. He isn't the only livestock producer reeling from Iowa's third year of drought in a row. Across the state, ranchers have reported tight or insufficient feed levels following 2023's low hay yields and poor hay quality. Many have had to buy more hay to supplement their own stocks, with above-normal hay prices cutting into their bottom lines. Non-feed costs also are creeping higher. Producers such as Swanka are now focused on getting their cows through the winter and hoping for better conditions next year. This was one of the most challenging summers we've had, probably since the drought of 1988, Swinka said. Probably for the first time in 40 years, it sure is on my mind every time we take hay out and I see the bales disappearing from our supply. 2023 marked Iowa's third year in a row of drought and its 22nd driest in 151 years of records. Almost the entire state was in some form of drought starting in June, with exceptional drought covering 5% of the state at its peak. 2023 also tied 2016 as the 10th warmest year on record. As a result, Iowa's hay production took a hit. Yields dropped to 2.95 million acres, down 18% from 2022 with heavy influence from drought. All hay harvested acres were estimated at 1.01 million acres, a 160,000 acre dip from the year before. Hay quality suffered due to the drought too. Cuttings were consistently ahead of their five-year averages throughout the season. Hay conditions averaged 46% good to excellent for the season as a whole, reaching their lowest quality since at least 2019. The drought also impacted other feed sources for cattle, such as pastures. Their conditions largely declined throughout the season, with lows hitting in mid-September and early October, when only 15% of pastures were in good to excellent condition. Pastures experienced their worst conditions since 2020. Many producers chopped some of their corn crops for silage to make up for the hay deficit, Some grew hay on land enrolled in the Conservation Reserve Program that was released during the summer's emergency drought conditions. Others mixed various feeds, such as distiller's grains, into their hay to make a makeshift salad for their cattle. The journey to keeping cattle fed throughout the winter comes at a cost, especially after a tough growing season. Winter feed tends to be one of the biggest costs for producers, and so it has a big effect on the bottom line if you have to buy a lot of feed, said Christopher Clark, an Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Beef Field Specialist, serving counties in central and south-central Iowa. For some folks right now, one of their solutions is reducing cow numbers. Less mouths to feed is the big factor there, and the cow price has been relatively strong too, Clark said. That's not, not all bad, except it's kind of a short answer, because then you have less cows to calve and to breed for future profit. By December 2023, cattle prices dropped down to $164 per unit and have been slowly making their way back up ever since. 
herds may be rebuilt and rebound in late 2024 into 2025. Herd reduction actually helped reduce the pricing pressure on beef because you're creating more beef here in the short run. But when things get really tight on the beef side, we could see greater volatility in prices for both the producer and the consumer. And turning to the Iowa Today and a, the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state, which is accompanied by a black and white photograph of students walking to Perry Middle School in an early morning fog Thursday in Perry. Middle school students returned to classes Thursday for the first time since a high school student opened f- fire in a shared cafeteria, killing two and injuring six others on January 4th. We see the silhouette of two middle schoolers walking down a sidewalk with snow blanketing either side of the sidewalk, and they are shrouded in fog as they approach the school. Under the heading in the news, geofencing used in betting investigation. An attorney for two former Iowa State University football players charged with sports betting violations said Iowa investigators used geofencing software on at least one public campus, amounting to a warrantless search that invaded student privacy. The claims come after a deposition of Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation Special Agent Brian Sanger, who defense attorneys say violated players' privacy. More than a dozen Iowa athletes were charged last year in a state DCI probe into illegal sports betting on Iowa's campuses. The attorney who made the motion asked a Story County judge to force state agencies to turn over documents related to the investigation. AG pitches penalties for police assault. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd is proposing a bill to increase the penalties for a person who assaults a law enforcement officer, firefighter, healthcare worker, or other protected professional. Byrd said the current laws are too lenient and she believes raising the penalties would lead to fewer assaults. Bill would mandate national anthem. Iowa Republican lawmakers advanced a bill this past week that would require public school students to sing the national anthem every day. Students would also be required to learn about the words and history of the anthem and how to love, honor, and respect the anthem. School officials said the bill was an unnecessary mandate. Bill would strip civil rights protections for gender. A bill that will receive first consideration in the Iowa House this week would remove gender identity protections from the Civil Rights Code, effectively stripping transgender Iowans of protections against discrimination. The bill would also add gender dysphoria to the definition of disability under the Civil Rights Code. LGBTQ rights activists said the bill would allow for discrimination against transgender people and that defining gender dysphoria as a disability is insulting and incorrect. The Republican chair of the committee said he has some concerns but wanted to have a conversation about the proposal. Bill would bar traffic quotas. Iowa lawmakers are considering a bill that would ban state and local law enforcement agencies from instituting quotas for traffic stops. State law already bars quotas for citations, but the law would extend that to prohibit quotas on traffic stops, regardless of whether a citation is issued. Hinson endorses Trump. Iowa Representative Ashley Hinson, who represents Northeast Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, endorsed former President Donald Trump in the Republican presidential primary a week after Iowa's caucuses. She is the first and only Iowa U.S. representative or senator to endorse a presidential candidate. Under the heading, they said, First off, it's insulting to characterize people who are non-binary and transgender as having a mental illness, essentially, which is what it does, to say that they're disabled mentally for being themselves, I think is just wrong. Iowa Representative Sammy Sheets on proposal to remove gender identity from civil rights protections. And, I want to do all we can to do to increase respect for law enforcement. You do a tough job, respect for our first responders and others who do very difficult work and are just trying to help people. 
Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd on bill to increase penalties for assaulting law enforcement. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Property Tax Audit. Iowa State Auditor Rob Sand said this past week that low- and middle-income Iowans are paying the higher property taxes compared with wealthier Iowans. Sand released a report on the data, which he said was to inform lawmakers for future tax policy proposals. Crisis Pregnancy Centers. A bill proposed by House Republicans would make it easier for the state to funnel $2 million to crisis pregnancy centers that discourage abortion. While the state has had trouble finding an administrator for the program, the bill would allow the state to administer it directly. Abortion rights advocates said these centers are unlicensed and unaccountable, and they don't have the same rules around patient privacy that medical clinics do. Under the heading Water Cooler, Anamosa Teen Dies. A 13-year-old Anamosa boy died last week as a result of injuries sustained in a sledding accident earlier this month. Adam McWhorter crossed over a road while sledding and was struck by an SUV on January 10th, authorities said. And Reynolds backs Texas. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds joined two dozen other Republican governors this past week who signaled their support for Texas Governor Greg Abbott's defiance of President Joe Biden's administration and the U.S. Supreme Court over razor wire set up at the southern border. The governor said Texas has a right to self-defense under the Constitution and that Biden had failed to secure the border. Althea Cole writes in her To a Candid World column, written for the right reasons anti-grooming bill needs work. Everyone agrees on why, it's how that gets tricky. When I was in junior high, I overheard a snippet of a hushed conversation between a boy in one of my classes and the teacher, a male in his late 40s. The background noise of students working on class projects muffled most of the conversation, but I could sense from his body language that the boy, who was sitting in a chair next to mine, was agitated. As he rolled his eyes and huffed, I wondered if the boy was about to be reprimanded by the teacher, a somewhat stern man, for being disrespectful. Instead, the teacher quickly knelt down and leaned in next to the boy on the opposite side of where I sat, and with a hint of urgency in his voice, began counseling him quietly. It was during a quick lull in the background noise that I heard the teacher softly ask the boy, Are you mad at me? It seems such an odd question for a teacher to be asking a student. Certainly, it's why I remember the brief exchange at all. I was barely a teenager at the time, insulated from the inference of anything sinister by my childish naivete but it still seemed weird. Just over a year and a half later, the teacher was charged with third-degree sexual abuse for, as the Gazette reports at the time, allegedly engaging in a sex act with a 15-year-old male student. After his arrest, it was reported that a couple of other male students came forward with similar allegations. It wasn't until I was in my late 20s, past the statute of limitations for what it's worth, that I realized the random snippet of conversation I overheard could have been part of an abuser's act to groom his victim. I will never know, and I will never attempt to find out. Nobody likes discussing the awful subject of sexual abuse of a child by a school employee, but we must. It's part of our societal duty to protect our children from being abused and exploited by predators who lurk in positions of trust, a duty in which the law plays an integral role. In addition to criminal penalties for sexual abuse and sexual exploitation by a school employee, Iowa law already outlines requirements for schools and area education agencies, or AEAs, to report to the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners any disciplinary action taken against a school employee for certain reasons. It also requires reporting to the board when a licensed school employee is terminated for misconduct or resigns following an allegation of conduct that, if proven, could or would result in having their license yanked. 
Conduct subject to mandatory reporting to the board includes seeking, encouraging, or effectuating an inappropriate relationship with a student. House Study Bill 568, which passed out of an education subcommittee on Wednesday, would expand the list of mandatory reporting requirements to include, include grooming behavior. The bill's definition of grooming behavior includes patterns of flirting, time alone with a student without any educational purpose, anything reasonably interpreted to be an overly personal or intimate relationship, or any other individualized special treatment not in compliance with generally accepted educational practices. That seems pretty straightforward. Nevertheless, it's a very broad definition of grooming, enough so that some education groups have signaled opposition out of fear that the bill's broad language can inadvertently apply to actions of a school employee that are arguably harmless. At best, casting such a wide net for crackdowns could strain well-suited relationships between students and their teachers as school employees look to create distance to avoid repercussions. At worst, it expands a list of ways a teacher's career could be derailed for actions that do not actually rise to the level of misconduct. Speaking against the bill, Nathan Arnold, lobbyist for Professional Educators of Iowa, or PEI, listed examples of grooming behavior given by attorneys hired by school districts. They included actions as innocuous as asking a student how many siblings they had. PEI is described as a non-union option for liability protection, legal representation, and professional development for educators, thus occasionally putting it at odds with the Iowa State Education Association, the state teachers' union. But in this case, the two organizations largely agree. Language that goes too far to define grooming behavior could have a chilling effect on how teachers interact with their students. Everybody is on board with why it is so important to prevent behaviors that lead to abuse. How to do that is the hard part, especially when prevention is attempted through the threat of punishment. How to destroy evil without ruining good is one of the great quandaries of human existence. In medicine, for example, it can be difficult, sometimes impossible, to excise the evil that is a brain tumor without ruining the good that is a healthy part of the brain vital to life. A nation at war aims to destroy the evil that is the enemy threatening their way of life, but faces a terrible dilemma when the terrorist enemy holds their citizens hostage and uses innocent civilians as human shields. We see the quandary in law, too, when we seek to prevent evil through threat of punishment. Restrict the sale of most firearms in the name of protecting innocent lives, and you could violate a person's right to defend themselves and their families from violent criminals or predatory wildlife. Criminalize all abortions from the moment of conception, also in the name of protecting innocent lives, and depending on how the choppily the law is written, you could inadvertently bar a doctor from providing life-saving care to a woman experiencing a septic miscarriage. HSB 568 illustrates the quandary Iowa legislators face in seeking to further prevent the exploitation and abuse of students. If they pass a broad bill that leaves no stone unturned, the education system could lose good teachers whose careers become upended for nothing. If they dial it back too far, they leave gaps in the same system vulnerable to predators. Even if legislators write a perfect bill that targets grooming with surgical precision, it still might not be enough to ward off any and every potential abuser. Prisons in every jurisdiction are full of people whose criminal records show that several punishment, severe punishment, is not always enough to deter some people from committing the crimes of which they are convicted. Like every other person who has something to say about HSB 568, I'll be clear. That's exactly where those who groom and abuse children belong, in prison sequestered from any environment in which children are present. And should they have been school employees, they must also be known to the board and permanently stripped of their licensure. In what seems an increasing rarity, it is one controversial bill in the Iowa State House that has so far not seen opposing sides slinging partisan arrows at each other. 
No one is accusing the Iowa Department of Education of wanting to persecute teachers, and no one is accusing concerned objectors of enabling abusers. Having passed out of subcommittee, HSB 568 is eligible for further discussion and amendments. Perhaps there is a legislative way to address grooming behaviors in schools. If anything could ever get our legislators to collaborate and smooth out a tricky bill, it would be nice if it were in the name of keeping predators away from Iowa kids. Todd Dorman writes in his 24-hour Dorman column, Great nations don't need compelled patriotism. Iowa House Republicans are considering a bill that would require public school students to sing the national anthem every day. It was enough to make Representative Sue Cahill, a Democrat from Marshalltown, break into song. Cahill asked lawmakers and onlookers to rise and sing the anthem at a subcommittee meeting on House Study Bill 587. What Cahill lacked in vocal skills, she made up for with zeal. Lawmakers sang. Lobbyists sang. Reporters, looking both amused and befuddled, recorded the whole thing. Just when you think you've seen everything under the golden dome of wisdom, you're proved wrong. Cahill was making a point. She argued that although the statehouse is the perfect place to express patriotic fervor through song, forcing kids to sing it in school is different. For one thing, the bill requires that all students stand at attention even if they don't sing. Cahill said that raises serious First Amendment issues. She voted against the bill. Her two Republican colleagues voted yes to keep the discussion going, they said. The school classroom is not the place for mandating the singing of the national anthem, thus mandating patriotism for students, Cahill said. I think that's something students choose, and it's something that they learn. You've got to love compelled patriotism. Just look at how happy all those North Koreans are with frightened smiles pasted on their faces. But boy, they sure love Kim Jong-un. Yep. Iowa's bill is sponsored by Representative Skyler Wheeler, Republican Orange City, one of the legislature's most active compellers. He led the charge last year to remove books from school libraries and erase all references to LGBTQ people from elementary school curriculum. In the past, he did battle with critical race theory and sought to ban the teaching of the 1619 Project. He also favors scrapping tenure at universities. Specifically, his bill requires all teachers and students to sing at least one verse of the anthem daily. It's probably the one that ends with play ball. All teachers and students who are physically able to stand must do so and remove any headdress not worn for religious purposes. Students don't have to sing the anthem, but they are required to stand to show the full respect. On some special occasions, students will sing all four verses of the anthem. All four. The bill also would amend social studies curriculum to include instruction on the words and meaning of the anthem, the object and principles of the government of the United States, the sacrifices made by the founders of the United States, the important contributions made by all who have served in the armed forces of the United States, and how to love, honor, and respect the national anthem. The bill would not apply to private schools. A lot of this is already being taught. No one's against learning about the government, the founders, the military, etc. But this bill is really designed to send a message. Regurgitate the standard, rosy, and conventional history of our country, or there may be trouble. Nothing that makes anyone uncomfortable, and don't even think of kneeling in protest, Buster. I have no problem with kids learning about the anthem, so long as kids learn about the most interesting aspect of the song story, and that's the contradictory life of its author, Francis Scott Key. Most of us know the basic facts. Key was on a British warship negotiating for a prisoner release during the War of 1812 on September 13, 1814. He was still on the ship when the British began their bombardment of Fort McHenry, which protected Baltimore's harbor. The Brits wouldn't let him leave the ship. At daybreak, Key saw the American flag still was flying over McHenry. He wrote a poem about what he had witnessed, which became our national anthem in 1931. 
but you probably know less about the man than his poem. In a 2022 essay in the Baltimore Banner, University of Maryland professor Rona Cobell fills in some blanks. Key's family owned slaves. He married Mary Taylor Lloyd, whose family also owned slaves, including Frederick Douglass. Key was an attorney, and his law partner and friend was Roger Taney, who, as a Supreme Court justice, handed down the infamous Dred Scott decision in 1857, declaring that all blacks, slave and free, could never be U.S. citizens. And yet, Key represented several black families seeking freedom in court. Score one for Team FSK. But Key also was a proponent of the colonization movement, which advocated sending slaves back to Africa. In a letter to Reverend Benjamin Tappan in 1838, Key wrote that black Americans are, quote, a distinct and inferior race of people, which all experience proves to be the greatest evil that afflicts the community, end quote. As a district attorney in Washington, D.C., Key prosecuted abolitionists, believing the property rights of slave owners outweighed the free speech of slavery's opponents. One prosecution of a black man wrongly charged with attempted murder sparked a riot. The incongruity of his work and his poem was noted at the time by abolitionists who mocked an America that is land of the free and home of the oppressed. He is a very representational figure in his racism and the politics of slavery, author Jefferson Morley told Cobell. His book, Snowstorm in August, Washington City, Francis Scott Key and the Forgotten Race Riot of 1835, digs into Key's role in the riot. So teaching about Key is teaching what America was like before the Civil War and the contradictions of men such as Key and Thomas Jefferson who wrote, all men are created equal while owning slaves. The full story is far more compelling than the redacted version. But I doubt any of this will come up in Iowa schools, and that's unfortunate. It simply doesn't fit with our sunny historical mythology. Just sing the song, kids, and then recite the Pledge of Allegiance, which has been required in Iowa schools since 2021. What will happen to this bill? Who knows? It is the silly subcommittee season when the Capitol's rarefied air is filled with trial balloons. Many will pop. But what we do know is great nations don't compel patriotism, fear protests, or hide their history. Someone should write a song about that. Turning to the editorial cartoon and the community letters, the editorial cartoon from Lisa Benson, a syndicated cartoonist distributed by Counterpoint Media. We see a woman in a wheelchair on the side of a cliff. The wheelchair is labeled Nikki, and an elephant with a Red Cross bag and the RNC written on his sleeve is pushing the wheelchair off the side of the cliff, while Nikki, Nikki Haley, is saying, I'm not dropping out. The first letter is from Jim Walters of Iowa City. Chung's fault argument falls flat. David Chung, teachers are underpaid, it's their fault, January 21st, says teachers are underpaid relative to engineers because they've chosen unionization and job security. His argument falls flat for two reasons. First, the comparison of teachers to engineers is one of apples to oranges. Virtually all engineers work in the private sector for organizations that seek to make a profit. Their salaries are measured by the contributions they make as individuals to those profit-making ventures. Teachers don't work to create profits, they work to create minds. Second, we're still in a world that retains real and quantifiable differences between the salaries of men and women for the same work. Chung concedes that teachers, mostly women, have a professionalism that's undeniably parallel to that of engineers, mostly men, accountants, and lawyers. Contemporary history shows women employed in fields that have mostly been available to women, teaching, nursing, waiting tables, daycare, nursing home care, and yes, even sex work, have benefited from unionization and collective bargaining. So don't blame teachers for being underpaid. Look in the mirror. Jim Walters of Iowa City. Next, John Carver of Decorah writes, Trump has no right to be next president. Attention, Donald John Trump, former president of the United States. You are hereby notified to immediately begin telling the truth. We are doubly numb with your untruths. 
This reminds me of the author of a book being asked where he got his facts and was told, if necessary, they could be invented. It's time to get a grip on the handlebars. Your existence has been a sequence of evasive schemes. Records now indicate you have 91 indictments pending in the legal system. It is the truth that could have helped you. There are times when you can't seem to tell a story the same way twice. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. The President of the United States has a sacred duty to be honorable for those he serves. It's time you begin a new life, if that is possible. If it isn't, then you have no right to be the next president. John Carver of Decorah. Next, Tony Staub of Cedar Rapids writes, Moving games to Peacock ruffles Hawk fans' feathers. We're longtime University of Iowa basketball fans, Fran, Lute, Dr. Tom, Raveling, and on, and on. But Lisa Bluter, Caitlin Clark, and the women's basketball team has captured all Hawk fans' attention. Their games were a must-see in our household and the most entertaining in a long time. And then along came the streaming network. Peacock? We don't know the TV magic that lets us enjoy this basketball phenomenon, and I'm sure we're not alone. We've even tried the sports bars. Louie's Backyard in South Padre Island, Texas, has 50 TVs and 50 Iowans hoping to watch the game, but no Peacock. We've called the Women's UI Basketball Athletic Office. Friendly, pleasant, but they said the decision was out of their hands. Sorry. Help! Tony Staub of Cedar Rapids. Next, Joanne Sadler of Correctionville writes, Iowa must act on care facility violations. We all have those moments that we will never forget. The moment we realize the September 11th, 2001 plane crashes were not an accident or when COVID-19 shut down the world. I will never forget when I checked my parents into the home. It was a gut-wrenching experience. My heart was full of sadness, worry, fear, and agony. I prayed that they would be well cared for as we all do for our friends and family and care facilities. Correctionville is my home and the home there has some very distressing violations. In one recent incident, a man was found in his wheelchair at night near Highway 20 while the staff was unaware of his absence. Last March, the state proposed and suspended a $9,250 fine for failure to provide adequate supervision. In May, the state proposed and suspended an $8,250 fine for failing to prevent abuse of a resident. The latest incident involves a resident who alleges she was raped in the parking lot by an employee and after reporting the incident was dumped at a homeless shelter in Sioux City. The Correctionville Specialty Care is owned and operated by Care Initiatives based in West Des Moines. Care Initiatives ended the 2020 fiscal year with $5.8 million in net income, and the former CEO, Miles King, collected $605,487 in compensation that year. I appeal to all to contact the governor and state legislators and express your outrage. Our state should care about its elderly. Joanne Sadler of Correctionville. And the final letter is from Teresa Greenfield, USDA RD State Director, Iowa, Des Moines. Biden's investment bears fruit in rural Lynn. U.S. Department of Agriculture Rural Development recently provided an $820,000 community facilities loan to Lynn County Fire District No. 3 to renovate and expand the district's fire station. This investment is a key part of the Biden administration's Invest in America initiative, focused on building and growing rural communities. This loan is one example of what Invest in America looks like in Lynn County. Teresa Greenfield, USDA RD State Director, Iowa, Des Moines. And some quotes of the week. First, Cedar Rapids Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell explaining why the city council won't take up a resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Mayor O'Donnell says, The question of the council is whether we are going to wade into issues of foreign policy, of which we certainly have no authority. The answer is no. Next, State Representative Sammy Sheets, Democrat Cedar Rapids, and the first Arab American to serve in the Iowa legislature, expressing disappointment that the council did not act. Representative Sheets says, 
While the city's decision will not impact the outcome of the war, its moral stand can symbolize our community's commitment to peace, justice, and human rights. By publicly advocating for a ceasefire, the council can send a powerful message contributing to the collective call for peace in the region. Journalist Laura Bellin, in a statement after the Iowa House granted her credentials to cover the chamber after years of denial and a federal lawsuit, journalist Bellin says, I hope this victory for press freedom will make any public official reluctant to deny access to reporters either as retaliation for tough coverage or because of political bias. And Lisa Bluter, Iowa women's basketball coach, reacting to a collision between Iowa's Caitlin Clark and an Ohio State fan storming the court after the Buckeyes' overtime win, Coach Bluter says our players should be safe. They should be able to walk off the floor. That's very disappointing. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 28, 2024 on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. I am your reader, Sharon Feldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. David William Carlin, age 82, of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 13th at St. Luke's Hospital. A celebration of life gathering will be from 1 to 3 p.m. Saturday, February 17th at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street Southwest. Private family inurement will be at a later date. David worked at Iowa Steel as a pattern maker for over 14 years and was an over-the-road truck driver for over 30 years until retiring in 2006. David enjoyed fishing, watching basketball, working on the computer, and most of all, spending time with his family. Janet K. Phelps, age 83, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on January 25th with her loving husband and children at her side. Janet worked at Rockwell Collins for many years, retiring in 2005. She enjoyed reading, flowers, her pets, water fights with her family, and shopping with her twin sister, Janice. Janet loved spending time with her family, especially her grandchildren. A funeral service celebrating Janet's life will be held at 11 o'clock Tuesday, January 30th at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Entombment will be in Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday at the Cedar Memorial Chapel Stateroom. Barbara Jean Vondracek, age 90, of Cedar Rapids, died January 21st at the Heritage Specialty Care following a short illness. At this time, there will be no service. Tea and Funeral Home and Cremation are serving the family. Barbara was a member of St. Ludmilla Catholic Church. Barbara enjoyed cooking, word finds, and spending time with her grandson. She was an avid St. Louis Cardinals baseball and Iowa Hawkeye fans. She loved animals of all kinds. Eric Donald Lewis, age 48, of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 17th. Eric was a fun-loving individual who made every attempt to enjoy life to the fullest. He had a passion for sports, particularly the New York Jets and the Iowa Hawkeyes. Golf was his main sports passion, whether he was watching or playing. Eric worked in the hospitality industry and was always a face in the public. He enjoyed helping others and was quite the people person, adding good harmor, humor, and charm as well. In memory of Eric, his family and friends will gather to celebrate his life at the Double Z Bar and Grill, 629 Ellis Boulevard Northwest, Cedar Rapids, on February 17th from 11.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. Tony Neal Tlusty, age 69, of Cedar Rapids, passed away January 22nd at his home. Memorial services will be held at a later date with burial at Czech National Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Cedar Rapids assisted the family. Tony worked at Me Too and the Gazette. Tony had a passion for chemistry. Marketing and selling on eBay was also something he enjoyed, as well as being an avid collector. Terry Ellen Baronic, age 67, of Cedar Rapids, Terry Allen Baronic, 
passed away on January 25th following complications of dementia at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy. Tian Funeral Home is caring for Terry and his family. <clears throat> Christopher Jonathan Edwards of Huntsville, Alabama, a visionary of avionics software, died on January 12th at home surrounded by family. Chris was born in Mason City. Chris excelled at seeing the combination of disparate items, remembering the details and maintaining focus to find creative solutions. Role-playing games such as Dungeons and Dragons helped form most of his lifelong friendships. Chris's career in computer science led him from MCI and Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and finally to Huntsville, Alabama, where he worked for software simulation systems engineers and Redstone Arsenal as a subject matter expert and chief architect. He staunchly supported open systems architecture through the FACE consortium and collaborated on 20 papers as well as the technical standards. At the apex of his career, the modular open systems approach was adopted by PEO Aviation and Chris attended the inaugural MOSA Summit in Atlanta in September 2023. Chris's other passion in life was intellectual and creative challenges. He could often be found at IHOP board game night or planning an escape room adventure. He led Team Must Love Dogs to second place in Brain Blast National Trivia Championship in 2016. A memorial service was held in Huntsville. <clears throat> Roger Dean Pullman, age 84, of Monticello, Illinois, passed peacefully at his home surrounded by family on January 24th at 4.03 p.m. Services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, January 30th at TN Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids. Roger's family will greet friends on Tuesday at 9.30 a.m. Roger will be laid to rest at Shiloh Cemetery, Hiawatha, Iowa, with a luncheon immediately following at the funeral home. Roger enlisted into the United States Navy in 1958 and served four years on the USS Bennington CVS-20. At the University of Illinois, he served as Director of Business Affairs and Cashiering from 1979 until he retired in 2004. To know Roger was to know that he was a die-hard University of Illinois Fighting Illini fan. When the weather was right, he would tee up that golf ball, cast his fishing line into the river behind the house, or camp at Lake Shelbyville, in addition to going to auctions for his antique booth. After retirement, he spent his winters in Florida, and then in the spring, he meticulously cared for his yard and flower garden, but nothing compared to family time. There will be a celebration of life at the family home in Monticello, Illinois, at a later date. Lois Rosine Thedens, age 89, of Rowley, died January 22nd at her home, surrounded by her family, following a two-year battle with breast cancer. Memorial services will be at a later date at the First Presbyterian Church in Rowley, with burial in the Rowley Cemetery. Lois taught as a substitute at Independence for many years, and she became involved in the mentorship program. She supported her community, organizing the food booth with other churches at the Rowley celebrations for more than 40 years, and also served as township clerk and election board member for many years. Lois was an active member of the First Presbyterian Church and held many roles within the church. She was a Sunday school teacher and superintendent for more than 50 years. She was a church elder, led the Presbyterian Women's Organization locally and regionally, and she was part of the Presbytery of East Iowa Peacemaking Committee, which allowed her to travel to the former Soviet Union in 1984 and participate in peacemaking discussions with her counterparts, one of the highlights of her life. Lois was humble, kind, and accepting of people for who they were. She had a passion for education and loved her family. She was a certified master gardener, tending her own garden for 67 years, and was a wonderful cook. White Funeral Home in Independence, Iowa, was in charge of arrangements. Matthew Ferguson of Iowa City passed away at the age of 37 on January 20th from the results of a heart attack. 
Though he left this world far too soon, he left it a better place. Matt was known for his kind, gentle heart, and great sense of humor with a smile for all. If you were his friend, he would give you the shirt off his back. He was a talented golfer and disc golfer who loved football, hockey, and basketball. Matt will be sorely missed by his golf league companions at Quail Creek. Matt had a love for music, art, and a heart of compassion for animals. A celebration of life service will be held Monday, February 12th at Terry Trubud Park Lodge in Iowa City from 4 to 8 p.m. A visitation hour will be followed by a service at 5.30. Catering will be by the Vine Restaurant, where Matt had worked as a cook for over six years. This day would have been Matt's 38th birthday. Mark A. Davis, age 52, of Center Point, passed away January 24th at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City. Visitation, 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 2nd, Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Center Point. Funeral service, 11 a.m. Saturday, February 3rd at the Funeral Home. Celebration of Life, 5 to 8 p.m. Saturday, February 3rd at American Legion Post 279, Center Point. Mark worked for Worley Warehousing until 2013. He loved the outdoors, especially fishing and hunting. Mark took great pride in taking care of the lawn and his property. Above everything, Mark loved his family and time he spent with his children. Turning to the sports page in Iowa State men's basketball, Iowa State surfs the Hilton Wave yet again. Cyclones upend 7th-ranked Kansas in a key Big 12 contest by Rob Gray, correspondent in Ames. Iowa State guard Keyshawn Gilbert smiled and delivered a heartfelt four-word message. Shout out to the fans, the St. Louis native and UNLV transfer said. But before speaking those appreciative words, Gilbert simply shot the lights out of a sold-out and amped-up Hilton Coliseum late in Saturday's win over number 7 Kansas. The six-foot-three junior drained a shot clock buzzer-beating three-pointer with 41 seconds left to essentially seal the number 23 Cyclones' 79-75 triumph over the Jayhawks. And moments later, fans streamed onto the Hilton floor to celebrate. As soon as the buzzer went off, I looked up and there was a crowd of people, said senior forward Trey King, who led ISU 16-4, 5-2 in the Big 12, with 21 points while draining a career-high four three-pointers. It's truly special. It was the first time I've ever had the opportunity to have the court stormed. Kansas, 16-4, 4-3, trailed by as many as 12 points early in the second half, <coughs> but pulled within two at 74-72 before Gilbert's fateful three-pointer from the top of the key tumbled through the cylinder. Gilbert scored nine of his 16 points in the final 429 and also drew primary guard duty on Jayhawk star senior Kevin McCuller, who scored 16 points, four below his average, but needed 18 field goal attempts to do so. When you're tasked with guarding Kevin McCuller, who's probably as aggressive offensively as any player in the league, and you do the job he did defensively, what we preach is the offense will come around for you, said Otzelberger, whose team notched its second top 10 win of the season. And it certainly felt like late in the game, it's Keyshawn baseline drive, Keyshawn finish in transition, Keyshawn hitting a big three late. He didn't force the game. He didn't try to take it when it wasn't there. He stayed ready, and when the opportunity presented itself, he was terrific. So were virtually all of the Cyclones from beyond the three-point line. ISU entered the game ranked eighth in the Big 12 in long-range shooting, but drilled 14 of 30 against the Jayhawks. Kansas, meanwhile, sank just 7 of 20 from beyond the arc, and that disparity, Jayhawks head coach Bill Self said, proved to be the difference in the game. We should have been able to get to shooters better, but give them credit, Self said. A lot of it was, could we have done better? Yes. A lot of it was that they made shots they hadn't been making statistically this year, and we played the percentages, thinking coming up here, that would be the smart play. On paper, it was. In practice, it proved to be disastrous, as five Cyclones made multiple three-pointers. Freshman forward Milan Momsilovic and senior guard Curtis Jones drained three long-range shots apiece, and Gilbert and sophomore guard Tam and Lipsy sank two each. 
ISU shot 60% from beyond the arc, 9 of 15. In the second half, to quell an array of rallies, the Jayhawks tried to mount. Mike Kloss writes in his column, Another game, another satisfied crowd. The Carver-Hawkeye Arena parking lots were packed two hours before Saturday's 1 p.m. Nebraska-Iowa women's basketball game. It wasn't a tailgate-type day, January in Iowa and all, so some fans sat in their cars and ate lunch, waiting for 11.30 a.m. when the doors of the gym were opened to the sellout gathering of 14,998. The concourse soon would be flooded with fans. If you wanted a Carver ice cream cone, as hundreds did, you needed the voice of Sherlock Holmes' advice to Dr. Watson in your head. Patient is a virtue, Watson. You should learn to cultivate it. Be it waiting to get inside the arena, waiting for a sweet treat, and waiting for Iowa to play like Iowa in this game, patience was rewarded. This was another of the now-dwindling days in which this senior-laden, number-five-ranked Hawkeyes team did a lot to entertain and wow fans of the game and these particular women. Early in the third quarter, with Iowa up 38-34, Hawkeye senior guard Molly Davis tripped over a Husker defender and went sliding while teammate Kate Martin was missing a three-pointer. While lying on her back, Davis caught the carom in the air and immediately whipped a bounce pass back to Martin. Iowa scored on the possession, the fans went wild, and the Hawkeyes went on to a 92-73 win. These are the good old days, and everyone who has season tickets or wrangles a seat in Carver for one game knows it. This was another such day. Sure, the first half was ragged and unremarkable. Iowa scored the last nine points for a 36-31 lead at the break, punctuated by a Caitlin Clark three-pointer with 2.8 seconds left. Clark had a pedestrian first half by her stratospheric standards. She had just seven points before that three-pointer closed the half. Naturally, she made six second-half threes and sank three free throws after getting fouled on another bomb. Clark scored 28 points in the second half to finish with 38. 28 points and a half. That's more points than any other player in the nation averages per game. Her splashing the ball through the net is always great fun, but Clark's show has other features. The competitor in her was a bit surly at times in the first half when things weren't sailing along. Iowa coach Lisa Bluter removed Clark from the game with 2.13 left in the first quarter and gave her a suggestion. My message is, let me do the talking to the officials, Bluter said. That's my job, so I just want to do my job. Pete Clark is when she's knocking down two three-pointers in 48 seconds or less, as she did three times in the second half. It's also when she's showing frustration with officiating and then taking it out on the opponent. While she had the ball midway through the third quarter, Clark let the officials know she thought she'd been fouled. She played through the no-call, driving to the hoop for a score. What's funny is that as Iowa's other players in the game stand on the court as they wait for a timeout to end, Clark almost always is talking and laughing with officials. I have a great relationship with a lot of officials, she said after the game. They love me and we love talking, but I'm feisty and competitive. They know I think they do a great job refing. And listeners, let me tell you about the magic of Iowa women's basketball. My own child, 23 years old, has never cared a bit about sports until this year, when suddenly she's an avid Iowa women's basketball fan, has gone to a game, and watches every game, knows every player's name, and yells at the screen when they do well or when they do poorly. And if you're a football fan, or happen to be married to a football fan like I am, then you know that today is the NFL playoff game for the conference championships, Today, the AFC Championship is Kansas City at Baltimore at 2 p.m., which will be on KGAN-TV, which is the CBS affiliate, depending on where you're listening. And the NFC Championship will be Detroit at San Francisco, which will be at 5.30 p.m. on KFXA Locally, which is the Fox affiliate. And then the Super Bowl will be on February 11th at Las Vegas. Of course, the teams are TBD. We'll find out today. That will be at 5.30 p.m. on KGAN, which is, again is the CBS affiliate. I hope that your team is still in the playoffs, and I hope that your team wins today.
Today we have the History Happenings column from Jessica Klein and Rob Klein. Jessica Klein, a leadership and character scholar at Wake Forest University, and her dad, Rob Klein, not a scholar of any kind, they write this monthly column for the History Center. Today they write about Franklin Middle School in CR. Stories about front railing, bucket of blood gym, and art collection. We have been inspired by the work of Leon Luke, a longtime educator in Marion and Cedar Rapids, who for many years has been recording and bringing to life the history of Franklin Middle School in Cedar Rapids. This year, the school at 320th Street Northeast celebrates its 100th anniversary. Luke, as it happens, was Jessica's speech coach while she attended Franklin, and his wife, Jean Oberbrockling, was Rob's former speech coach and longtime vibrant member of the McKinley Middle School community. The two kick-started and inspired our creative lives. We interviewed Luke over lunch at Big Grove Brewery in downtown Cedar Rapids in early January, learning a lot about Franklin in the process. Notably, Cedar Rapids was the first community west of the Mississippi to build intermediate schools. What today is called Benjamin Franklin Middle School was the third of these schools to be commissioned, and it was dedicated on March 12, 1924. Franklin became a high school from 1935 to 1957, a junior high from 1957 to 1987, and has been a middle school from 1987 to the present. One of Luke's first stories was a doozy. When you pass the school building, you'll notice the hand railing that splits the large concrete staircase leading to the front doors. Leon learned from a former student, the one who did the deed, that the railing was put there after a Ford coupe was driven up those steps in the 1950s. And then a few daring students from the class of 1955 hung undergarments from the flagpole that used to stand near B Avenue. Then they tossed the flagpole's rope high into the adjacent spruce tree. According to the fellow who climbed the tree to make the rope inaccessible, school officials moved the flagpole nearer the front doors to discourage any more pranks. The spruce tree still stands tall by the school's stone marker at the corner of B Avenue and 20th Street Northeast. Recent Franklin students and parents will be able to tell you that the building boasts two adjacent cafeterias. While Jessica was always partial to the North Cafeteria, the South Cafeteria's history particularly stood out to us. Initially, the space was meant to be a pool. However, due to the rising cost of ceramic tiles after World War I, it was never completed. Instead, the room became the girls' gym and the wrestling practice room. As the story goes, the students dubbed the gym the Bucket of Blood due to the frequency with which students playing basketball or participating in wrestling workouts would crash into the walls of the tight space. On the first floor, you can find the lower gym, which was added to Franklin in 1935 and expanded in 1980. Across from the gym is the boys' locker room, occupying a space that had originally had a dirt floor and was intended to be a rifle range, though it was never completed. Franklin also boasts an expansive art collection, which Luke has lovingly fostered over the years and which contains everything from paintings to sculpture to carefully chosen neoclassic and French and English Gothic architectural details. To any native of Lynn County, it is well known that Grant Wood and Marvin Cohn had deep connections to the area. Remarkably, some of those connections are on display in the walls of Franklin. Paintings that can be seen include Wood's Indian Creek and a few reproductions, including Autumn Oaks. The original used to be found in Franklin, but is on loan to the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art. Additionally, Marvin Cohn's Iowa Hills also can be found. In recent years, Luke has added works by former staff and students of the school. Among our favorites is Dale Barnhart's Three Watercolors, 1936, which can be found on the fourth floor. Barnhart wrote the school's fight song, Thunderbolt Battle Cry, and worked as an animation artist for both Hanna-Barbera and Walt Disney. While he was too humble to mention it to us, Luke has contributed some of his own photos to the collection, including corn detasseling and Root River Ride, as well as examples of his woodworking. Luke has long offered tours of Franklin, including to groups of former Franklin students who gather for reunions, 
and we would be delighted to show you around the school too. You can email him at l-l-u-e-c-k at southslope.net. And a piece of history from Tara Templeman, the curator of the History Center, the touring chimp who had a bad cold. Consul, a chimpanzee who toured the country as the missing link, the scientific wonder, and the chimpanzee with a human brain, was set to perform one week in January 1910 in his dress suit and silk hat at the Majestic Theater in Cedar Rapids. But Consul was too ill to entertain at the almost sold-out show. He had traveled with his handler to Cedar Rapids from the Pacific Coast and had a nasty cold. The audience can see the chimpanzee sneezing and coughing with his eyes running, just like a human suffering from the same condition. While the audience had hoped to see Consul eat his supper with a knife and fork, smoke a cigar, ride a bicycle, roller skate, and unlace his shoes, they did cheer him when he came out at the end of the show in his fur coat. Several other acts filled in the time allotted for Consul. Barry and Barry in a laughable musical melange, Al Lawrence, America's greatest humorist, Finley Crane Company with convulsive college comedy, comedy, Robert Liefers, Cedar Rapids popular vocalist, Flo Adler, exceptional clever comedian, and the Da Coma's marvelous, novelty, marvelous novelty artists. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, January 28th, 2024. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, selecting, lightly editing, and reading articles from my messy kitchen table in Coralville. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We do welcome your comments, and thank you for listening.